Hey everybody, Jared here with a brief message before we begin this episode. As we've said before, recording a podcast remotely can be a wonderfully painful process. And this week, for no apparent reason, my half of the audio ended up recording at a volume I can only describe as ear-splitting. I tried to salvage it as best I could, though to be honest it's still not fantastic. But Madison and I had a lot of fun recording this episode, and I spent way too long trying to fix it, so I decided to upload it anyway. This episode in Black History Month follows the work of Dr. Eric Jarvis, a very accomplished researcher and professor who specializes in the genetics of vocal learning, among other things, and has worked to sequence the genomes of 48 different species of bird to answer a great deal of questions about them. So listen on to hear what Dr. Jarvis and others have to say about bird evolution, from their earliest roots to where they are now. That happened right before it started. <laughs> Twas well timed. Jesus, that was loud. <laughs> You're talking about mm. the volume. Hello and welcome. <laughs> what? Do you want to start over or are we all right? <laughs> We're just going to keep going with this. Welcome, right, to... <laughs> welcome, listeners, to Science and Pictures Presents Science in a Podcast. The podcast that takes the headache out of understanding scientific literature. Uh, this week, as always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Jared Adelman, across the internet from... Madison Dix. And if you're wondering the reason that Jared is laughing just a little bit as he speaks is because right before the mic turned on, I burped really loudly. I'm here Laughing to confess is an it. understatement. It was deafening. Like <laughs> It was, uh, it was, I'm pretty proud of what I accomplished. No, you should be. That was impressive. It got me out of it, yeah. but it was impressive. <laughs> I'm pretty proud of the uh, my microbiome for producing such lovely, lovely acoustics for me. Hey, good job, Madison's microbes. Thank you. All <laughs> right, what are we talking about this week? Because we talked about microbes well, last week. Well, we're not talking about farts or burps. Uh, we are talking about, uh, well, first of all, it is our second week uh, in uh, Black History Month, which is... Um, we, we goofed a little bit. We posted an episode, uh, the first weekend just because we recorded the prior week, but we will still be doing four full episodes for this month, um, as well as doing a lot of this focus for science, uh, in podcasts moving forward as well. But, uh, this is just to say that we will be putting out four full episodes for Black History Month. It will not just be three. Absolutely. Our February is just on a slightly different timeline than your February. That's all. Like many people, I have no concept of time, and this is, like, how I mark my weeks, like, recording this on Wednesday nights. Hey, same. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, in that theme, uh, our scientist in question this week is Dr. Eric Jarvis, who is a really, really cool dude. He runs his own laboratory, but he deals with a type of animal that Madison is not the biggest fan of, and that would be the bird. Mm, yeah. Love black birders. Don't like the bird part of it as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun little thing in our friendship. Me just trying to get Madison to like birds for about two years now, I think. And how have that been yeah. doing? Yeah, you know what? You've made more progress than anyone else, probably. You've you've um, introduced me to some great literature about birds, including a really excellent book that I recommend for other uh, birdophobes called The Genius of Birds. Definitely <laughs> helped me uh, appreciate the Corvid family. Um, and the author, so Jennifer Ackerman, uh, actually published a new book about a year ago called The Birdway, which is just as good, if not better. All right, we'll keep working on it. Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know, which is all of you, because none of you know me, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I don't just hate birds for no reason. It's not like 
like that. It's because um, I was attacked by a blue jay as a young child. And so that just that just put a bad taste in my mouth for the future. And um, I recently realized that I do need to forgive birds um, because it's not their fault. And I do respect them and their place in the ecosystem. But on a personal level, I still still hold a grudge. So this should be a fun week. Yeah, that's valid. I like to treat it the same way that a lot of folks treat insects. Like, you don't got to love them. You just got to appreciate what they do, you know? Yeah, I, I I see them. I appreciate them. Maybe give them a little applause, but just like stay away from my person. Thank you. <laughs> That's fair enough. And uh, we also uh, have a, a bit of a new segment we like to do on our show. Uh, this is going to be surrounding some of the nonsense around birds this time, but let's officially kick off our section titled... Squashing nonsense. That was perfect, I think. It might have been. We'll find out in post. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're going to squash some nonsense about birds. Um, So you introduced the author of your study, um, Mr. Jarvis. It it is Mr., right? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Perfect. Um, But what you didn't introduce was the topic of your article. So I would love you to do that. Um, okay. I mean, you said birds, but like, tell me more. It's really everything. It is the complete evolutionary history of birds of what we know so far. There we go. Okay. So the evolution of birds. So for my squashing nonsense this week, um, I chose to squash two separate groups of nonsense. Ooh. A little bit of nonsense around birds and a little bit of nonsense around evolution. Okay. I like that. Make a little nonsense sandwich with birds right in the middle. Um, <laughs> so... The first thing I would like to cover is an excellent article from the National Wildlife Federation called 10 Myths About Bird Behavior. Um, so myth, this is a, a list that they came out with 10 common myths that they hear all the time about birds that are just not true. So the person who this wrote this article, it was written by Bridget Stutchbury uh, in 2010, but it still yeah. holds up, I think. Yeah. Um, All right. So myth number one, we'd like to squash about birds. This is nonsense. Birds sing because they are happy. (laughs) (laughs) Which a lot of people believe because of like, I don't know, probably Cinderella and Snow White, that that area of the world. But um, do you know why birds sing, Jared? Uh, Well, the most common reason for birds to sing would be to attract a mate. Very good. Territory is their territory. There's a few reasons, but mating is the most common. Yep, exactly. Either they're singing to warn away competing males, uh, to warn other birds about predators or threats, or of course to attract mates. Um, so that's why they sing. Generally, if they're singing, it's it's really not because they're happy. It's because they need something. Um, so yeah. There are also one of my favorite birds, uh, for one, just because of its name, it's called the Forktail Drongo, which I just really like the sound of. Um, but it's also an incredible mimic and it likes to hang around, uh, colonies of, I can't remember if it's either meerkats or prairie dogs, but it'll mimic the calls of, to alert a predator when there's no predators around, just so we can go and steal the food that, that they left behind. That is hilarious. Right? Oh my God. (laughs) Especially because both meerkats and prairie dogs have pretty complex, uh, vocal ranges and almost language. They're like, they're. They're real social. Exactly. And these birds can just hijack it to get what they want. It's amazing. Amazing. Oh, and that reminds me of the mockingbird, um, who who really can mock human speech pretty effectively. So can crows. It's really cool. And ravens. Oh, it's so, so, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm just going to stop now so I stop gushing. But please keep going. 
All right. So myth number two, birds pair for life. Oh boy. Um, so, <laughs> so this, I think has mostly to do with a lot of species of penguin, mostly the Adelie penguin. Um, mm. but it doesn't really line up when you go and actually look at them because they will have sex with corpses if they can. Like, oh, that's a great thing to say about penguins and endangered species. Jared. (laughs) (laughs) They've been seen doing it. That's all I'm saying. Well, most birds have. It's one of the reasons I don't like them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, to your point, yeah, um, monogamy or mating for life um, is not the truth for most birds. Um, There are a lot of birds that are monogamous, i.e. they tend to mate with the same partner season after season. Um, but that's that's the loose definition of monogamy that we're working with. It's nothing like marriage. Um, actually, I mean, it's like some marriages. <laughs> but it's nothing like, I don't know. It's not what you think, basically. No. Um, birds sometimes only stay with one partner for a few months uh, or a few years. Many birds will have one monogamous partner for a lifetime, but will frequently, um, quote unquote, cheat on their mates. Um <laughs> Actually, they have a, there's a DNA paternity testing shows that in many species, 40% of the offspring are the result of extramarital meetings. So, um, yeah, not super, not super lovey-dovey there. Um, It's just not good to put all your eggs in one basket. So if you want to... Literally. Exactly, literally. So if you want to maximize the genetics of your offspring, then you're going to want to have multiple deaths. Exactly. Um, and another thing I learned um, from looking into this myth is that um, the annual divorce rates, they really do call it divorce for oh. birds, which is a little bit anthropomorphic, but whatever. Um, so um, guess which bird has the highest annual divor- divorce divorce annual divorce rate? Highest annual divorce rate? Mm-hmm. I uh, shot in the dark and going for a duck. All right. Uh, no, it's the flamingo. Oh, really? Yeah, 99%. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so if you're looking to date a bird, uh, just know that those flamingos are players. <laughs> uh, uh, ooh, fun fact about flamingos now that we're on them. There was a study mm-hmm. that used uh, dead flamingos to uh, find out why they're able to stand on one leg so long. And okay, Jared, can... how come you're just bringing everything back to dead birds today? <laughs> I just realized I just did that twice. <laughs> Okay, but tell me about the study. Uh, what did they learn? So basically, the dead flamingos were able to stand up on their one leg even when they're dead, and they use that to basically determine that flamingos and a lot of other birds use significantly less energy standing on one leg than they do on two. All right, so they're lazy and adulterous. Love them. <laughs> <laughs> they're efficient in both respects. Um, guess which bird they found has the lowest annual divorce rates? Mm, some kind of albatross. Yeah, the wandering albatross. Oh, nice. Okay. Which is funny because it's called the wandering albatross, but like that mother <laughs> is loyal. Yeah, <laughs> they wander together. They do. That's really sweet. Albatross are the scariest birds. Um, <laughs> not, they're not the, don't confuse scariest with most dangerous listeners. They're not dangerous. Okay. I'm just very <laughs> afraid of them. That makes sense. Because um, I have to get yeah. into the cassowary, but. Cassowaries are definitely more dangerous. Um, but no, I'm really afraid of albatross. Just the word albatross like gives me the willies. I think somebody told me a horror story one time when I was young involving one. Or maybe 
Maybe I heard that they were a portent of death. I don't know, but I associate albatrosses with like, they're in the same category in my brain as like ghosts and like things that go bump in the night. <laughs> they wander around bringing doom. I don't know. The more I learn about them, the more I'm like, these birds are noble as hell and <laughs> they do not deserve <laughs> my fear. Um, but nonetheless. Um, so yeah, if you are under the same impression as me that albatrosses are spooky ghosts apparently that's also a myth they're not all right myth number four touching a baby bird causes parents to abandon the nest is this true um not at all in fact most birds don't really have the sense of smell to be able to do that exactly yeah so birds um they don't have a great sense of smell um they don't have no sense of smell it's just like much less uh evolved um some seabirds can actually have a really good sense of smell they can recognize their mate by smell and turkey vultures also have a good sense of smell because they uh, hunt things that are dead by smell, so but most birds smell is not. Nah. I have one more dead animal story. Okay. Uh, oh, goodness. I mean, I did say carrion, so. <laughs> so this uh, concerns the turkey vulture as well as the uh, black vulture, both of which live in a lot of the same areas, being North America, among other places. Um, a famous scientist by the name of John Audubon was actually one of the people to sort of say that turkey vultures didn't have a great sense of smell because he littered like these cadavers and buried them across an area um, and the vultures weren't able to find them but it turned out he was using black vultures instead of turkey vultures and just didn't realize so also oh, black just, vultures don't have a good sense of smell but turkey vultures do exactly yeah yeah i wonder why that's interesting isn't it yeah I, it, I think it has something to do with the way that they actually will forage and scan. And might, uh, I might be talking out of my butt at this point, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm always am, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, to get back to myth number four about the, the touching a baby bird, um, just because it doesn't cause a parent to abandon the nest does not mean you should go poke in baby birds. Please don't do that. It can definitely stress them out. Um, but parents put a lot of efforts into building their nests, so they're not going to abandon it just because they see a human nearby. The origin of this myth comes from the fact that if you're poking around a bird's nest, they're not going to return to the nest while you're in the area. They're going to watch you like a hawk, lol, uh -huh. um, until you leave the area, and then they'll come back to check on their babies. So humans thought <laughs> that touching the nest causes a bird to abandon the nest because the bird will not come back to the nest until the human is gone. Kind of like a, if a tree falls in the forest kind of situation. Just your run of the mill urban legend. Yep. All right. Myth number five. Um, apparently we have Aristotle to thank for this myth. Um, this, migration? this one is that swallows survive winter by burrowing in the mud. Oh, yep. 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 <laughs> he did that. Um, Sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't know that he did that. So tell me more. Well, I, so this idea persisted for centuries and centuries, and people were still trying to prove that birds could survive underwater into like the 1800s. There was this guy, Charles Caldwell, who was like a human physician who decided to take these swallows, uh, tie weights to their legs, and then just submerge them because he thought that they would just go into a sort of torpor and just sort of hibernate, but obviously they died. Um, was that was, the same guy who developed the test to figure out if women were witches in the 1600s? <laughs> I would not doubt it, man. Because <laughs> it seems like it's about the same. Basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, um, it kind of makes sense that it took us so long to figure out that birds flew across the entire planet, but I feel like we were drowning birds for a little bit too long to prove that, and like any bit would be too long, so... 
Yeah, I would agree with you there. But you're right, they do actually fly across the planet. Um, so purple martins and barn swallows in particular fly about 10,000 miles a year round trip. Um, and they go to Brazil oh. in the winter. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. I'm flying on that Jesus statue. And I think of... <laughs> For sure. Uh, I think of Brazil as being like, you know, the land of like all of the colorful birds, but like it's it's interesting to think that the swallows and martins that you find down there might be the same ones that you'd find up here. That's just really cool to me. I don't know. Definitely. Why. They're like co-mingling with all the actual birds of paradise. Yeah, it's they're kind I mean, they're the original snowbirds. They're like the people in Florida. Anyway, um, <laughs> before I start any new myths about birds, uh number six, um, feeding hummingbirds in the fall stops them from migrating. Um, so this doesn't make any sense just because they would have to eat to be able to fuel the migration. Yeah, this feels like, um, the kind of rumor that got started by, like, a Facebook vegan. Yeah. And I, I must, okay, listen, y'all, I am almost vegan. <laughs> I have nothing against vegans. I have something against Facebook vegans. You know what I'm talking about, Jared? Just very, kind of like vegan, just so you can tell people about it, not like, for, like the actual environmental benefits or anything. Just militant about yeah. it. Um, yeah, like there are just, there are just some people who seem to want to ruin everything for everyone. Um, and I feel like this person, that's the kind of person who started this, this rumor. Like, so they saw somebody like feeding hummingbirds in the fall, giving them some nectar, like feeling good about themselves for taking care of their local environment. And they were like, guess what? You just killed those hummingbirds because now that they think they can get food here year round, they're going to freeze over winter. Like, I yeah. feel like so, like it was either a Facebook vegan or an eighth grade bully. <laughs> it's, it's even more amazing because like there already is a thing like that happening, which is people feeding ducks bread, which is super bad for them. So like you already had a cause. Just go, go talk about that. Like, yeah, leave people alone at their houses and go to the park. Talk to them. Those are your people. Okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and that is actually the next myth um, that uh, you sh that it's okay to feed birds bread, rice, and grains. Um, it's not. But, but think of your birds as gluten free. Okay, they just. <laughs> it's not if if um, if Gwyneth Paltrow couldn't eat it, neither can a bird. All right, <laughs> that's a good way to do it. <laughs> I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, feed them, you know, sliced grapes, um, fruits and veggies, always a good call. Um, yeah, but yeah, just corn uh, and stuff like that. Like, yeah, it, again, if Gwyneth Paltrow would eat it, we're probably in the clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and don't give them yoni eggs. Anyway, um, so yeah, um, you can also feel free to feed hummingbirds all year round. Um, they, they actually eat like actual fruit and everything in the fall anyway. They feed on flowers and, you know, fruit that falls on the ground. They'll leave on the migration when their internal biological clock tell th tells them to. Um, yeah, and it exactly. has more to do with, like, the sun and the moon and the wind than it does with Karen's bird feeder. So leave her alone. <laughs> um, she just yeah. wants to All feed right. those birds. She does. I'm on Karen's side for the first time in my life. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Myth number oh, seven. Wow. Um, this one has to do with calling someone a bird brain. So this is the myth that <laughs> My favorite. Yeah, birds, birds are stupid, um, which you gave me a whole book to refute called The Genius of Birds. So why don't you take this one? No, no, not, no. 
Um, first of all, if you compare every single animal on this planet, even, like, things that aren't animals, to the intelligence that humans have, obviously they wouldn't match up. But no. this also, one of my favorite quotes, which I think was by Albert Einstein, would be, if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it's gonna live its whole life thinking it's dumb, unless it's a mudskipper. Yep. I, I, <laughs> I was gonna say, Einstein didn't say that last part, but I'm glad that you added it, because that is a fish that climbs trees all the time. Indeed. So, like, those can. But, um, yeah, mm-hmm. the idea of a bird brain is something that's been perpetuated for centuries and centuries, because they don't necessarily have the regions of the brain that we have. But we've also been talking a lot about convergent evolution in the, in, in the last few weeks, and it's not quite the same thing as a, as the same brain re, re, region evolving, but they've repurposed different areas of their brain to do the exact same complex thought that our ancestors could. Yeah, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Any science you have that tells you, that points to a specific area of the brain and says, this is what happens here, end of story, that's pseudoscience, because we do not understand the brain well enough to be able to do that. And the thing about the brain is, is it can change itself, and it is constantly changing itself. Um, So much so that there are several, I mean, many cases of a person losing half of their brain or the front of their brain or, you know, losing, sustaining incredible like brain damage and regaining full function, like their left hemisphere will take on the tasks that their right hemisphere used to do. Like the brain is super, super plastic and malleable. Mm -hmm. Plastic isn't able to be changed, um, not made of... See, just a quick tangent, (laughs) that's the one thing in science that I never could quite make sense of, plastic and static. I feel like static should be the movie one, and the plastic should be, like, the rigid one, but it's the opposite, and I don't Right, yeah. Uh, Nothing is static, first of all. Uh, (laughs) Everything is plastic. Yeah, plastic basically is, like, when I think of plastic, I think of, like, melting plastic, and I guess that's how I help it stick in my brain. That is... Okay, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, it works. But anyway, the brain is plastic. And so the scientists who thought the birds were stupid basically just like cut a bird's brain in half and they were like, oh, it's so small. They must be dumb. And it's like, no. <laughs> they pack a lot not, of neurons into that tiny brain. Yeah, it's not how it works. Um, so we know better now. They're pretty smart. Um, it's and there are. It's not all entirely. I don't know. I We. My favorite thing recently on bird intelligence is the idea that you can sort of use, like, the level that at which they innovate new behaviors as sort of one mark of their intelligence. And if you do it that way, any guesses which bird is at the bottom of that? Oh, which bird never does new behaviors? Yes. Chickens? The low, uh, not, not, not the lowly, they're, they're lovely, but the lovely emu. And, oh, emus never do, new, never do anything new. They just do not innovate. And I've worked with emus, <laughs> I would say that absolutely tracks. They are just one-track mind, and it's great. They're, they're great at doing what they do, but don't expect any new behavior out of them, ever. I had no idea that emus were so inflexible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do their best. Wait, which bird does is the most innovative? Wait, no, don't tell me. Let me guess. Is it the crow? It's probably the either the Kia or the New Caledonian crow. Yes. Oh, the New Caledonian crow is the star of the genius of birds, by the way. And oh, so I, cool. that bird is smarter than me. I'm just <laughs> saying right now. Um, hey, same here. Um, I've interrupted you a sh- crap ton, so please keep going. Oh, okay, okay. I'll keep going. Um, yeah, so different species of birds have been shown by science uh, to be able to recognize relatives they haven't seen in years, to be able to recognize human faces, um, to be able to tell a stranger from a neighbor just by their voice, and that's bird strangers and neighbors. Um, remember the location of food, hit away months earlier, use tools, um, use language, do math. 
Uh, <laughs> they've done a lot of things. Um, so yeah, birds aren't stupid. All right, myth number eight. Uh, two parents are needed to raise the young. Um, not always. Not always. Exactly. Can you name the two species of birds? Uh, well, there's more than two species, but can you name the two species of birds listed in this article where the female raises the young all by herself? Where the female raises all by herself. Um, uh, ducklings? Ducks? No. It's, uh, well, maybe. No. I mean... What, what this is an unfair test because I don't know all of them. I just know that I learned from this article that um, hummingbirds and woodcocks, it's only the female raises the young. The male just, really? yep, the male's just a genetic confetti gun. Interesting. Okay, I did mm -hmm. not know that. Yeah. Um, and then there's other species of birds that actually recruit nannies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so um, that's of course the corvids, those smarties. Uh, so like crows and blue jays were examples, um, which was interesting to me because when I was attacked by a blue jay, it was because I got too close to the nest. I was sitting in a tree underneath the nest. Um, and now I'm like, all right, was it a mom, a dad, or a nanny blue jay that <laughs> 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 drew blood from my scalp? I'll never know. If it's really vicious, I can bet it's the nanny. If it's really vicious, I bet, well, I don't, you know, I don't really, I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid the, the Blue Jay is listening and I just don't want to say anything that's going to get me hurt. <laughs> We're going to get an email later that's just like, squawk! Yeah, probably. Um, ooh, it's, ooh, uh, okay. I have a cat now, watch out. Anyway, um, <laughs> before I get too scared, um, our final myth, um, well, our second to final myth um, is that since birds can fly so well, they can easily adapt to climate change. Have you heard this one? Because I hadn't. No, I hadn't heard that ever. Why would that be? It takes so much. No, what? Yeah, no. I guess people think that like, because birds can fly that they can be anywhere. And it's like, no, they're just as tied to their habitat as any other animal. Um, yeah, that they can't. <laughs> birds often devolve flight when they get to places where, where, where they're actually safe in an evolutionary sense. So that's like the reverse. Yeah. Um, so a lot of bird species are changing their migrational patterns because of climate change, but that does not mean that they are adapting to climate change. That means they are trying to survive it. Um, and those changing migration patterns could very well kill them. I mean, if you look at, for example, another animal that's changing its migration because of climate change, the North Atlantic right whale, um, since they've migrated further north, they've migrated out of protected zones that have been established in U.S. waters to protect them from all sorts of fishing gear and into waters where those regulations don't exist. And this year was a record year for calves for the North Atlantic right whale, but many of those calves were actually struck by ships and killed. So their mortality rate is going up and there's only 400 left of them. Oh, why that am I talking about whales? Sucks. Because I like whales better than birds. <laughs> That's super, um, wow. Super sad. So that's just an example of just because an animal can, is changing doesn't mean that that's a successful adaptation. Right. Also, like, yeah. who's to say that they could just be following the same cues that are now leading them in the wrong direction? Exactly. So, yeah, that's total nonsense. I've squashed it. <laughs> squashed it. Um, all right. And then there's one more myth. Um, and that is the myth that... <laughs> Birds aren't real. <laughs> How did I know? How did I know? <laughs> um, and that they are actually government-issued drones. <laughs> <laughs> now, I kind of put this one on the list as a joke um, because 
maybe like one or two people have seen the birds aren't real campaign and actually believe it. But most people know that birds aren't real is a total hoax. It's right. actually created to poke fun at QAnon specifically. <laughs> was it really? That's awesome. Yeah. Love yep. It. It, yep. It was, um, it was a purposefully absolutely ridiculous conspiracy theory um, that was hatched if you will, <laughs> um, by like a 20 year old in college. Uh, let's see if this article says his name. I didn't write it down because I'm a professional. Um, you can look it up. Birds aren't real. You can figure out who. Now, I who feel like this is started by the pigeon myth. Like, because that's been around for decades, hasn't it? The idea that like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Yeah, that's been around for decades. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that he took that and like, I mean, that's a joke that people, when they see it, they're like, uh, LOL. Like, no one takes that serious. Well, right. I can't, I get, I can't say no one. I'm sure somebody looked at that and was like, oh, damn. And like, took it seriously. <laughs> but uh, generally, people aren't taking that seriously. So maybe that's where he got his inspiration. Yeah. Um, anyway, I really want a Birds Aren't Real shirt. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Uh, your birthday is coming up in a whole year. So I know what to do now. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. So it was yours. We're both born in February, by the way. It's the best month. Um, what? Like, oh, you weren't. <laughs> right on uh, the cusp, but almost there. See, I always think you were born in February because you're born because you're an Aquarius like me. But you were born in the end of January. And no, I don't believe in astrology, listeners. I just like it. <laughs> just like it. It's mm -hmm. fun. It's fun. Um, and so is birds aren't real. But once again, you know, not a real. <laughs> not a real theory um but pretty funny um oh, just to squash the pigeon myth right now you're never going to oh, see sure. a pigeon uh because you're never going to see a baby pigeon because they don't leave the nest until they're fully fledged and can fly so you know check the nest if you want to find a baby pigeon oh interesting where do pigeons build their nests by the way i've never seen a pigeon nest that's a good question i would guess buildings or just like gotcha birds aren't real <laughs> <laughs> just as i don't know because <laughs> oh, I don't boy. know the answer means there can't possibly be one <laughs> exactly yeah uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing your pigeon knowledge you're welcome yeah what little I had um, pigeons by the way are an example of a type of bird that does mate for life oh yeah they're also yeah. one of the few birds that make milk what the hell? Well, it's not like milk milk, it's called crop milk which is a gross term, but it basically describes the it might be secretion. It might just be the grinding up of food. Please stop. But... I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> Crop milk. Now in stores near you. Okay. Moving on to the five most, <laughs> the five most common misconceptions about evolution. I don't want to hear anything more about pigeon milk, please. <laughs> okay. That's the title of the episode. I don't want to hear anything more about pigeon milk, please. I'm writing that down now. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Um, okay. So, <laughs> well, first of all, um, one thing I wanted to look up was what percentage of U.S. adults um, believe in evolution. And I found a really great article, a study done by uh, Pew in 2018. Um, and I could actually do a whole episode on this study, but, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to skip to like the most relevant piece of data, which is that um, when adults were surveyed uh, in the U.S., they surveyed a lot of adults um, in April and May of 2018 they found that 68% uh, of U.S. adults, well, between 68 and 81% of U.S. adults believe in evolution, that humans evolved over time. Some of those people do believe that humans evolved with the assistance of God, which is totally fine. 
Um, and, but anyway, it's between 68 and 81%. And the reason there's that gap is because they asked the question in two different ways. Um, and again, I could go into this study for a long time, but I'll just leave it at that. They asked the question in two different ways. Um, so that means between 18 and 31% of Americans do not believe, believe in evolution. They believe in creationism, specifically the alternative that was listed here. Um, that's, that's a fair amount. That's between one in 10 people and one in three people. <laughs> oh boy. It's a little less than I was hoping for, but about as much as I expected, I guess. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a pretty, pretty common in our country not to believe in evolution. I will say, though, the, 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 the woman who taught me evolutionary biology in college, who was an amazing professor, was a, like, devout believer. Like, you can do both. It's entirely possible to accept science and also the idea that we might have been started on the path by something divine. Yeah, totally. Um, the, the people who taught me evolution also taught me that it started, like, that the Big Bang was basically created by God and then um, evolution just followed. It was like an interesting, they shouldn't be talking about God in school, but whatever. (laughs) No, it was a, it was a Montessori school, so they can do what they want. Um, but I definitely learned more about evolution in elementary school at that Montessori school than I did in public school because I went to public school in the Midwest and, um, yeah, they, they weren't that good about teaching evolution in, in science in high school. Um, I can see yeah, they really didn't want to mention it. Um, Is it that they didn't want to, or just they didn't feel equipped to be able to talk about it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just know that we always skipped over the evolution units in the textbooks. It was, like, weird. Anyway, um, so I'm quite familiar from firsthand experience with all of these misconceptions about evolution. They were all around me growing up. Um, I am a devout believer in evolution. Um I do not know what started the universe, um, but I definitely believe that what's here has evolved. (laughs) Um, So the first misconception that you'll hear uh, tossed around by people who want to tell you that evolution isn't real is it's just a theory. Um, So like, yes, but also, sorry, keep going. Yeah. So the, the scientific definition of a theory is a well-substantiated explanation of some aspect of the natural world that sits above laws, inferences, and tested hypotheses. So basically it means something that's been tested so many times that it's basically proven. It's just that in science, we don't say this is the truth or this is fact because um, we acknowledge that nothing is static. Yeah. And just to put things in perspective, gravity is also a theory. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we, we, we could always know more about it, and we probably still yeah. have a lot to learn. Yeah, it's called gravitational theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, lot of other, there's a lot of other theories that no one else questions, but people for some reason love to point out that evolution is a theory. Um, and when they're saying that, they're basically saying that evolution is a hypothesis. That's what they're trying to say. Um, so you right. can say it is, in fact, not. It is a theory like gravity. Um, yeah. I think it also Uh, has to do a lot with the way that theories are treated in, like, pop culture. Like, any, like, any detective show, any, like, working hypothesis they have, they're gonna immediately call it a theory, no matter how little evidence is actually behind it. Which only, Yeah, it is, it's a word that started in science and was co-opted, 
um, by popular culture and the meaning changed, which happens all the time, not just with words from science, with words, I mean, that's how language evolves. So like many other words in many other languages, theory has more than one definition, but uh, in science, that's what it means. Um, so yeah, a lot of people don't understand that's a language barrier, jargon barrier. You know how much I love jargon barriers. Gotta love the jargon. Ooh, you drive me crazy. Okay. Um, <laughs> another common misunderstanding uh, is that humans are descended from monkeys. Um, a lot of people are offended by that idea and they think that's what evolution is all about. Um, I blame that piece of artwork. Um, you know the one. Mm-hmm. The monkey What's it called? Person. Yeah. The, 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 the ascent of man or something stupid like something that? Something like that. Yeah. I blame that. Everyone knows when you think about evolution, the picture that pops into your head, that picture, I think that's why people think that evolutionary biologist thinks that people descended from monkeys. No, um, monkeys and our, a common ancestor of ours, um, had the same common ancestor. That was so well phrased. We and monkeys <laughs> probably have a common ancestor, um, because we and chimpanzees, for example, share about 90% of our genetic sequence. So we're pretty closely related. 9.6, actually. Wow. Yeah, I said more than 90%. So I oh, wasn't sorry. wrong. <laughs> sorry about no, that. No, thank you for knowing the exact. I loved it. Um, all right. Yeah. So basically, we and monkeys uh, had a common ancestor that lived about 7 million years ago, um, who was not a monkey, not a human, not an ape, um, a whole other thing. Um, that's what we descended from. So one way that I like to put this is every single creature alive on the planet today is has had the exact same amount of time to evolve. So we are not more evolved than monkeys. <laughs> We're not looking at other animals around us in the tree of life as primitive forms of humans. That's not how evolution works. It's not a straight line. It's a web or a tree. Yeah. Um, like if yeah. you judge a, a human on its ability to be a snail, then that human's going to suck. It's going to come up short every time. Oh, we'd make terrible snails. Can you imagine? <laughs> can only can only think. Oh, I could talk about that for hours. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, we are not descended from monkeys. No one is suggesting that. Um, and then just to be clear, once again, evolution isn't marching in a straight line towards perfection. It's branching out like a tree or a many-armed river, filling niches and exploring, not seeking perfection, seeking survival. Yeah. Which brings us to natural selection. Oh, the man. current in that, uh, in that branching tree or that branching river. Um, so people get the idea in their head that natural selection is purposeful, that animals are swimming around thinking, man, like, let's take a giraffe, for example. Let's say a giraffe used to have a really short neck and then it was like, man, I wish I could eat those leaves on that tall tree. I should probably grow a longer neck. And then they like write it down in a notebook and then their baby reads it and it's like, damn, I got to work on my neck. That's not how it works. <laughs> Sounds like you've been drinking the Lamarckian Kool-Aid. Yeah, I, I was going to say that is uh, an older theory. Um, no, sorry. Oh my God. An older hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's an older hypothesis of evolution um, that uh, has not stood the test of time, didn't age well. Well, so um, there is the whole field of epigenetics, which is evolution within a lifetime. Like, there is certain cases where it does happen, but not in the way yeah. that I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Evolution within a lifetime, I would call adaptation, personally. Hmm. But I like it. I like it. 
Um, that's, I'm, we're about to get so many biologists being like, how dare you come up with their own word? You don't know our field. And you're right. I don't, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> just, just going to nip that in the bud. Yeah. Um, so natural selection can randomly favor the best of what is available. Um, but it does not purposefully turn all living organisms into like one super creature or make them perfectly adapted to their environment. It's, it's experimentation and random mutation. And then the ones that survive or go on to reproduce more, those genes get passed on more. Um, so that's natural selection in a nutshell. It's not, it's not thinking about, it's not the way that humans evolve tools. It's not like, I wish I had a tool that could do this my baby will now have one. It's not like that. No, not at all. Um, yeah. All right. Number four, uh, evolution cannot explain complex organs. So like one thing that creationists like to say is like, oh, really? How did evolution create the human eye? Um, well, it can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and eyes yeah, like ours indeed. have actually evolved several separate times um, among vertebrates and invertebrates. Um, so there's actually a really great video that I like to send to people when they say this to me. It's from the Neil deGrasse Tyson series on Netflix. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay. So if you go on YouTube and you Google, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson evolution, I, you'll find it. And it's really, really good. Um, he explains it much better than I ever could. Um, in this article, they do a quick blurb that explains it pretty well. By the way, the article I'm looking at now is from a publication called The Conversation. Um, and the author of this article is Beth Daly. Anyway, uh, so she said, um, a half-developed eye would serve no function. So how can natural selection slowly create a functional eye in a stepwise manner? Well, Darwin himself suggested that the eye could have its origins in organs with different functions. Organs that allow detection of light could then have been favored by natural selection, i.e., pre-humans, which had those light sensors, were able to survive longer, reproduce more, et cetera. Um, these ideas have been proven correct many years later by researchers studying primitive light sensing organs in animals. In mollusks like snails and segmented worms, light sense cells spread across the body surface and can differentiate between light and dark. So there so you go. Can, wait, 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 wait. They can see with their skin? You didn't know that? No, what? So can octopuses. Well, it's not it's not sight exactly but it's the ability to sense light yeah i just did not uh, okay i and the plants make sense the flatworm gets me a little well bit. i mean plants also have the ability to do this we don't really know by what mechanism um but you know plants will always grow towards the light so they have some way to sense light as well that's a that's a good point yeah <laughs> i know nothing all right yeah i know right oh god i love evolution um, and then the final myth about evolution is that religion is incompatible with evolution, which we actually touched on before diving into this article. Um, so evolution is not a theory about how life began or how the universe began. It's just a theory of how the things that are here now evolved, <laughs> which I'm using, you know, the word in the definition. But yeah, evolution doesn't doesn't make claims about how it all began. Um, just yeah, evolution is just how it's going not how it started, to reference a currently popular meme. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah. Um, so believe what you will about the creation of the universe. That's fine. Um, many people 
can work evolution into their into their beliefs. Um, and I highly suggest doing too, if you are a person of faith, um, look up other people of your faith who believe in evolution and see what they have to say about it. Um, Cause they probably have some really cool and creative explanations. And I would love to hear them. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's the nonsense that uh, I came here to squash my nonsense about evolution and about birds. And I have taken up 42 minutes. I interrupted like 18 million times. So I'm going to take partial blank for that. All right. Well, I mean, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. And yeah, that, you, you, I think that was the most fun squash and nonsense we've had so far. Oh, thanks. Aw, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't let my um, my hatred of, I mean, <laughs> excuse me, my, hey. slight dislike, my slight dislike of birds get in the way of <laughs> squash and nonsense about that. <laughs> well, that's All good right. Too. So now that we understand evolution and birds a little better, tell us what you've learned about them, Jared. Oh, so much. Um, so yeah, uh, going back to the topic of uh, Black History Month, we are talking about Dr. Eric Jarvis, who is a neuroscientist slash molecular biologist, uh, as we've said, a scientist who works with things like DNA and proteins. Um, he's also a, a professor and uh, head of Rockefeller University's Laboratory of Neurogenetics of Language. Damn! Um, Wait, yeah. neurogenetics of language. So is that it, like genetic language or? It's the genetic basis of how we understand and process it. Oh, that's so cool. Right? I was about to say something inappropriate. <laughs> I'm fanning myself right now. I'll say that instead. I'm fanning myself right now. <laughs> Moving on with Dr. Jarvis. <laughs> yes, yes, please. I'd like to move on with Dr. Jarvis. <laughs> So Dr. Jarvis is primarily interested in vocal learners, um, animals that are able to learn, imitate, and sometimes modify sounds they hear, which is a really small list of species. In the primates, you, exactly. In the primates, you have humans. We're the only ones that vocally learn. Um, and you also have the birds and a few other kinds of mammals, including whales and dolphins, uh, hummingbirds. Wait, that's a bird. Well, they can do it too. Um, <laughs> vocal learning happens a lot and it's really, really cool. Um, with Wait, can birds, I pause you for a second? Yes. Hummingbirds make sounds? Yep, hummingbirds uh, make sounds and also uh, practice vocal learning as well. They will, so it's really, really, really hard to hear them, but they do have mating calls and mating rituals. Are they just so high-pitched? I think so. Or just oh. like super, super, super duper tiny. Oh, they're so cute. They're flying needles, but they're adorable. <laughs> have you seen, have you seen the video of the hummingbird snoring? No. <laughs> I think that might be the thing to make you like birds. Um, can we put that in the show notes? Yes. Yes, we can. All right, and I'll also send you the Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about evolution. We can put that in too, but that'll Sweet. be a great collection. <laughs> a little watch this for after the episode. I like it. Yes. Um, but yeah, so uh, Jarvis uses songbirds uh, mainly as his, his research models, and Jarvis and his team investigate the genes and underlying mechanisms behind vocal learning. Um, just listing a few because he has, he's done so much over the years. But uh, Jarvis has helped to completely map the genomes of 48 different species of bird. Um, he used that genetic data to completely revise and overhaul the bird family tree. And he also discovered that birds and humans utilize and have modified the same genes to process vocal learning. So we can actually use songbirds to study how humans learn uh, sound too. That is so interesting. Right? Wow. I wonder... And now I'm wondering if, if like all of the animals on the tree that you just mentioned who have this type of vocal learning, I wonder if we all have a common ancestor way, way back who like had a little bit of it. That's curious. And they didn't like, 
one of the fish, one of the fish that was like, I'm going to go on land now. One of them, I wonder, if, <laughs> I wonder if one of them was like, I'm going to go on land and I'm going to talk to everyone about it. <laughs> like, He's just taking Frank Sinatra up on the banks. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. I do not know. I wonder. Okay. Continue. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so in 2015, uh, Dr. Jarvis collaborated with two of my favorite scientists, uh, Dr. Stephen Burzat, who is a dinosaur paleontologist, and Dr. Jingmei O'Connor, who is an expert on early bird evolution. Dr. O'Connor's like the coolest person ever, by the way. She's Dr. O'Connor's a- in that book. Is she? I think. Oh, that's think awesome. So. so she is covered in tattoos and is also a DJ in mm-hmm. her spare time. <laughs> so she's, cool. she's awesome. Um, so together, the trio merged their respective fields to delve into the complete natural history of birds. How they came to be and how they've achieved their incredible diversity in our modern world. Their paper is titled, and I'm not going to bother changing this just because it's pretty succinct, The Origin and Diversification of Birds. Okay, so I would call it Things Madison Doesn't Want to Know. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of calling it The Bird Conspiracy Stretches Back to, to the Mesozoic, but I decided to leave it. I think we've all we've come up with three solid options, and uh, uh, we should proceed. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's proceed. Oh, first, though, let's introduce a couple key terms. Uh, we have the word basal and the word derived. Are you familiar with these terms? Um, not in the correct sense, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so not the spice, but... Um, yeah, <laughs> it was like basil's real good on margarita pizza. <laughs> so, this, <laughs> so this is B-A-S-A-L, not I-L. Oh, basil is how I pronounce that, which is not oh. right, probably. It helps to differentiate it, though. I like it. Yeah. But, yeah. I still don't know what it means, but I know it's not basil. <laughs> <laughs> so evolutionary speaking, uh, evolutionarily speaking, these terms refer to traits and or ancestral lines of organisms that are either older or younger than one another. The ancestor is basal, while the descendant is derived from that basal ancestor. Oh, okay. Um, so basil is like grandmother, grandfather, except way, way older type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's pretty important that we use these Not words. Actually, I can remember that really well because basil is also an old man name. Hey, there you go. The basil field guy. Basil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, for one, think these terms are pretty important because they've largely replaced um, distinctions like primitive or advanced. Uh, because, oh, like, good. Exactly. Because like we've been talking about, there's no evolutionary ladder of perfection. It just doesn't actually exist. Um, in nature, any organism is adapted to fill the specific ecological role that it's evolved to fill. Those that couldn't fill up are going extinct or have already gone extinct. So in that way, humans are no more advanced than a little fungus quietly decomposing leaves on a forest floor somewhere. Exactly right. Exactly right. There is no stairway to heaven. Sorry, Led Zeppelin. (laughs) <laughs> might be a fungus to heaven but who knows um so oh, totally I... <laughs> actually i uh i know one we'll talk later <laughs> <laughs> does it rhyme with millobibin um so when one species evolves from another the older one is basal <laughs> while the new one is derived makes sense all right yep so grandpa is basal uh baby is derived baby is derived yes mm-hmm. um all right so let's get started Um, To modern scientists, the evolution of birds is one of the most well-understood and now supported uh, major transitions in the history of life. And transition is an important word here, because birds could not and did not simply come from nothing. Um, Much like how (laughs) cephalopods... What's up? Uh, No, I was just laughing at the idea of birds coming from nothing because the whole chicken or the egg thing. It's like, neither. (laughs) It just popped into existence one day. Yep. 
They just made a little, and that was it. Um, yeah. But not really. By the way, egg, egg, egg came first, right? Because fish laid eggs before birds. So the chicken-like egg also came first, but it was a little bit later. That evolved in their reptile ancestors. All right, so yeah, just to squash that nonsense, uh, should have done that earlier. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was the egg. Continue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so much like how cephalopods arose from snail-like mollusks and humans eventually diverged from the line of apes, uh, birds were born from dinosaurs. This is the coolest thing to happen in my lifetime. And it happened like right at the beginning. Well, it did and it didn't. We sort of... Anyway, um, this was not always such a certainty. Not yeah. all. Uh, I, I vividly remember when dinosaur coloring books went from scaly dinosaurs to dinosaurs with feathers. And I was like, excuse me? Ah, <laughs> uh, my heart just did a little flutter. I love it. Love it. Oh, love it. See, love I it. was upset because I really liked dinosaurs. But as you know, <laughs> oh, oh, the fe- yeah. I don't like birds. So I was like, how dare you? <laughs> Interesting. So if you were to see a featherless bird, how would you feel about that? I've never seen it. Something um, to test in the future. Well, I guess I have. I've seen a chicken nugget. <laughs> You're not afraid of that, are you? I am, actually. I don't know what's in there. Oh, damn. All right, so we're back to square one. But at any rate, <laughs> so we did not used to be so sure about birds being evolved from dinosaurs. But the idea of any connection at all between birds and dinosaurs got its start in about 1863 with the description of the now famous Archaeopteryx. This was, at the time, and in, to some people now, widely regarded as the oldest true bird. And this was a little weird uh, <laughs> because Archaeopteryx also possessed... What's up? I'm sorry. The oldest true bird. Now I'm thinking back to our common ancestor and, like, thinking about him, like, you know, walking up on land and, like, talking. Like, what if he only lied? He was false. I'm sorry. Oh, I need to let you get on with... Oh, whew. Okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm actually in my pocket for a second. We're, <laughs> we're still on the birds aren't real kick so no problem there um but so archaeopteryx was a weird bird because it was a bird with a non-beaked snout it had a scaly snout it had three claws on each wing uh it had teeth and a long bony tail which mm. might not sound like a bird right it doesn't sound good <laughs> you are not going to like this moving forward, but, but we're just going to power through. Um, so, so Thomas Henry Huxley, arguably Charles Darwin's loudest and biggest stand, um, used Archaeopteryx to argue in favor of evolution, and was might have been the actual actually the first person to draw a link between birds and other dinosaurs. But in his life, his theory didn't gain enough support, and his correct assessment would be largely ignored over the next century. Uh, people. Yeah, so we actually <laughs> accepted evolution before we accepted the link between birds and dinosaurs. I guess, I mean, I wonder if it was someone like me who was like, absolutely not, birds have nothing to do with dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs, get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like, I can grade me, just time traveled on accident, put on yeah, a well, beef. <laughs> we'll through the pictures and see if you're in any of them. I might be. <laughs> So instead of being descended from dinosaurs, uh, most scientists argued instead that birds evolved from a now defunct group called the Thecodonts, which don't actually exist. They were just a lot of fossils put in the same group because people thought they were the same. We now know they're not because the Thecodonts are no more. Um, in the ni- Indeed. In the 1960s, however, uh, paleontologists reinvigorated the dinosaur debate with more modern evidence. This includes the discovery of your favorite Deinonychus, a very, very bird-like dinosaur, 
and also emerging evidence of dinosaurs having heightened metabolisms and growth rates. Um, by 1990, like indeed, not quite to the level of birds, as we'll see, but much more in the way of birds than other reptiles. All right. Yeah. And reptiles real slow with the tummy stuff. Birds real quick. <laughs> real slow with the tummy stuff. Mm -hmm. oh, I like that. <laughs> no, no, that's what I'm saying. Um, by they have to eat constantly, don't they? They have. They can't go more than like a few minutes, or is that nonsense? How many words you said? Yeah, don't they? It's have to not. Eat so it's not like every few minutes, but it is a very, very, very short time scale. Okay. Anyway, right. <laughs> real fast with the tummy stuff. You were just on it with the bird slander today. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, back to pre-birds. Um, so by 1990, the majority of paleontologists did recognize the bird-dinosaur connection. But it actually took ornithologists, modern bird scientists, a while to actually follow suit. But then uh, in, I think, 1996, people started going to China and seeing there's... So China is still in its golden age of paleontology. There is so, so many cool dinosaurs coming out of there. But in the 1990s, they discovered thousands upon thousands of exquisitely preserved feathered dinosaur fossils. And that was enough to win over the modern bird people as well. Wow, okay, cool. You go, indeed. China. Yeah, indeed. So, yes, birds evolved from dinosaurs. And as we'll see, actually, they share so much in common with their closest relatives that most scientists do consider birds dinosaurs themselves. Um, but before we delve into the placement of birds in the dinosaur tree, let's do a little refresher on dinosaurs in general, just to get Madison away from Yes, let's! Yeah. <laughs> so, dinosaurs are reptiles, right? Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't know if we were allowed to call them that, because they're birds, aren't they? Well, birds are dinosaurs, but all dinosaurs are reptiles. You're the expert. I will defer to you. Okay, yes, dinosaurs are reptiles. So... There, okay, I will say that there's a couple schools of thought on this, but most of the dinosaur paleobiologists do follow suit with, with the birds, dinosaurs, and all being reptiles. And it does make sense. I hope it will make sense uh, as we get a little bit more into it. But, um, yeah, I just said so much in a minute that didn't actually have me saying anything. So let's just keep going. Um, dinosaurs <laughs> belong to a group of reptiles called the archosaurs, or the ruling lizards. This is oh, a yeah, thunder lizards and all them. Indeed. Um, this is along with pterosaurs and crocodiles and their extinct relatives. So, yes, crocodilians! They are living dinosaurs for real speed. Indeed. It also means that birds and crocodiles are each other's closest living relatives, which I just find so fun. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because they're both archosaurs. Now, uh, diving... What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Pretend I didn't hear that. Um... <laughs> So dinos themselves are further split into two groups. You have the lizard-hipped dinosaurs and the bird-hipped dinosaurs. Uh, the bird <laughs> so this is where it starts to get a little wonky for me, because birds are in the lizard-hipped dinosaurs and not the bird-hipped dinos. But, you know, whatever. Um, just a little aside Okay. There. Yeah, so the bird-hipped dinos include ceratopsians, like triceratops, of which there are over 80 species described nowadays, not nearly just triceratops. Uh, you have the stegosaurs, the ankylosaurs, and the duckbilled dinos. Those are all the bird-hit dinos. Okay, cool. Love them so far. Yeah, and then in the lizard-hit dinosaurs, we have the increasingly massive sauropods. Those are the ones with the four legs and the crazy long necks and tails. Like Brontosaurus. Yes, exactly. Not a real thing, right? So that <laughs> there's there's heavy debate about this, but there's a paper published a couple of years ago that re that reestablished Brontosaurus as its own species. Oh, okay, cool. 
Thanks for keeping yeah. me updated on the dinosaurs, Jared. <laughs> it's honestly, it's hard to stay updated with them because things change every five minutes. But uh, they yeah. do. Honestly, that kid who was on NPR was right. Um, all things considered, they really need to keep us updated on the dinosaurs. They don't consider all the things. I, we never hear about dinosaurs on that show. That is so true. They really should, you yeah. know? Especially because we still have some among us. But yeah, um, it, would, yeah. it would. It would. So in the... Can you think of any dinosaurs I haven't mentioned yet? Maybe some with uh, two legs instead of four? Tyrannosaurus rex, yeah. Yes, exactly. So now we reach the theropods. The theropods... Oh, is this one, are they the small-armed dinosaurs? Mostly. I was just guessing, because we have lizard-hipped and bird-hipped, so I don't think we have any other types of hips. So I was wondering if they were just going to poke fun at the arms. Oh, I sat on your tail, I'm so sorry. Not yours. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, I com I'm sorry, I completely lost lost my train of thought. Can you say what you're gonna say again? Oh, I was just wondering, um, basically, I was wondering what their category would be, since we haven't talked about them being bird-hipped or lizard-hipped, like, what kind of hips do they have? And then my brain went from there to, they probably don't even want to talk about their hips, because they're looking at their tiny arms, it's probably <laughs> group that's probably what they would call that group and then i asked you and then here we are <laughs> <laughs> um so they would probably be made fun of in their heyday for having tiny arms but they might have served a couple by years. that fish he walked out of the water he was like you have tiny arms like, <laughs> i'm telling the truth i'm sorry we are so i'm gonna zip the lip i'm gonna zip the lip <laughs> I came straight from working to coming doing this, so that's where my loopy comes from. What's your excuse? Same. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're both on the same page. So, mm -hmm. theropods. They are... Theropods. Indeed, which actually translates to beast foot, which I like a lot. But theropods are bipedal, meaning two-legged. They're mostly carnivorous. My favorite theropod is actually a herbivore. Um, but they include classic household names like Allosaurus and, like you mentioned, T-Rex. Nice. Indeed, it is within the theropods that paleontologists place birds. Okay. Indeed, and this is something that makes that Indeed. Because they reverse engineered a chicken back into uh, a tiny T-Rex. <laughs> oh, genetics and CRISPR. I don't yeah. know why they're doing that. It's it's fun, but like... Prove a point. Alright, damn, okay. I'll take I it. Think, I think that's what <laughs> I think it's really cool. I don't really see what point they're trying to prove, but it's cool someone's doing it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're just literally trying to prove the point that birds are dinosaurs. Um, and they're like, see, we will make one in order to show you. I, I just, I I want, I would rather we have tiny T-Rexes than chickens. <laughs> that would be really fun. Um, but yes, tiny T-Rexes as chickens. Um, oh, so the reason that birds are placed in, in the theropod group is that a lot of the things that we attribute to birds alone were already present in the ancestors to theropod dinosaurs. Like this eggs. Like eggs. And also, the wishbone was in theropods. Uh, yes! Yep. Cool. We also have all theropods had hollow bones, like birds do. Like and... most birds do. What's up? Like most birds do. Yes, I will say that they're still honeycomb, but not just totally dense, but yes. You're talking about penguins now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly solid. We can agree on that. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, also, the avian lung evolved in the ancestor, probably the ancestor to all bird-hit dinosaurs. Brontosaurus had air sacs in his lungs, and so do birds. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. And we know that because in birds, uh, the air sacs sort of make these little points of their bones where they sort of diverge and bend, and you see the same sort of bends and divergences in the bones of sauropods. <laughs> cool. It's amazing. Like, we don't even have to have the organ to say that we have it. Um, it's just really cool. Oh, science! Good job. Mm-hmm. So, in specific, uh, birds belong to the theropod group Pear Aves. Uh, modern birds are in Aves, but Pear Aves... Uh, is a group that they share with the raptors, also known as the dromaeosaurids, and the troodontids. Uh, those were actually believed to have the largest brain-to-body ratios of any non-bird dinosaur. So probably crazy smart. Well, maybe. Um, we think. We, <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know, but we think. Um, so this much we know for certain that these are each other's closest relatives, but the relationships inside this group are tenuous at best. Their fossils are so, so similar that there is still substantial ongoing debates whether these dinosaurs are more related to each other than they are birds, or whether birds are actually descended from one group or the other. Um, there's also a lot of debate over which dinosaur we can actually call the oldest bird. Some scientists... Hmm. Yeah, so some scientists still believe that that, that is Archaeopteryx. Other, other scientists... I was about to say other dinosaurs argue. Other scientists <laughs> argue. That'd be cool. <laughs> Um, other scientists argue for slightly older dinos as the OG birds, like the four-winged Anchiornis. Um, oh, four-winged. Indeed. Now, this is a really cool thing, too, because even though dinosaurs, the dinosaurs uh, sort of branching up to birds did have wings on their back legs, they didn't work for flight. They were not asymmetric, so they wouldn't actually allow flight at all. Just, like, for steering, right? Maybe steering, maybe egg incubation, maybe sexual display. We just don't know at this point. Oh, cool. Yeah, man. Love the options. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly all at once, too, because it's just... Bur feathers are super useful. Um, so just like Hermes. That's what he used his for, too. <laughs> Is that a Futurama? No, that's the Greek mythology. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> See, I was thinking of Hermes from, from Futurama, like, using a bird to heat up a sandwich or something, because that makes no. sense. But... Pat Pastorama. Pastorama. Pastor. The <laughs> Okay, got it. <laughs> this has gone so off the rails. Um, <laughs> so it's my there... fault. No, no, no. It's okay. I like it. Um, so we we can agree on more points. The scientists can agree on at least two points. One, okay. birds got their start sometime in the mid-Jurassic period, around 165 to 150 million years ago. And two... The oldest birds and their closest cousins had chicken-sized, lightweight, and feathered bodies, scaly snouts, no beak, long bony tails, and long clawed wing-bearing arms. So picture a bird right now with everything I just said. It's got a chicken-sized, lightweight, feathered body. It's got a scaly snout, <laughs> long bony tail, and long claws on its arms. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so Madison, you're probably thinking a few things are off. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> um, um, going internally first, this basal bird is missing some pretty important bones for easier flying, like the keel on its sternum, or the... How do I describe that in words? It's like a ridge that, on their sternum. That was not the first thing I was going to point out that was wrong with the picture, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably thinking externally. Yeah, I was like, that's just, none of that is okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see why you thought that. Um, because, you know, it doesn't even have a beak. Uh, just the long, scaly, toothy theropod snout. And the tail is way too long. 
it's got it's bony. It's like a it's like a jaguar tail. Cool. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, we're glad we're on the right track. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think honestly, now that I'm listening to that more in depth, I, I'm more on this animal side now that I know it doesn't have a beak. Interesting. Okay, beaks come later, but we're not there quite yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, regardless, these are the animals considered by dino experts to be the oldest definitively avian dinosaurs. So it's kind of no wonder why they have a, such a hard time actually making them out between birds and their closest relatives, because they look so damn similar, especially mm -hmm. in the fossils. Um, and then fossil record goes dark for about 40 million years. Um, after Archaeopteryx, there is a bird-shaped gap that has not yet been filled. But um, remember those fossils from China? So check in around 130 to 120 million years ago during the Cretaceous period. Thank you. Um, we can see that quite a bit has changed. Uh, by this point, beaks and flight enhancers like shortened tails, shrunken hands, and that bony ridge down, down their sternum had evolved multiple times in different lineages of bird. But still, the most common ones wouldn't look quite right to us. Because during the Cretaceous period, the dominant and most common birds were the enantiornithines, which means opposite bird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So they were called opposite birds because the part in their shoulder is convex rather than concave, like in modern bird. That's one of the only differences. Oh, it curves um, one way, not other way. Exactly. Oh, but also they had tiny claws on their wings, and most had several teeth or more jutting out of their beaks. Like bats. Like bats? No, no. I just I. I'm just thinking about bats. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking about bats to get away from the birds. I gotcha. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, regardless of why, because we don't quite know why, the enantiornithines clearly out-out-competed out the birds that gave rise to modern ones. And this trend persisted until the end of the age of the dinosaurs. It wouldn't actually be until afterwards that the birds that we know were really able to diversify in earnest. Like the mammals. Exactly. Exactly like that. Um, but before we get to that, it's been in years more and more clear that the evolution of birds to what they are today was by no means a rapid transition. In fact, nearly every aspect, uh, behavioral, physical, that we use to define birds, had evolved or started to evolve in their dinosaur ancestors. Feathers, for instance, have been discovered on both sides of the dinosaur family tree, and this suggests that they might actually be present in the ancestor to all dinosaurs. Um, the type of feather that enables flight showed up in the closest relatives to birds, not even birds themselves. It seems likely at this point that sexual selection, female mate choice, along with natural selection, probably work together to make feathers increasingly more complex over time. Everyone agrees feathers are hot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the warm-blooded thing. Um, while modern birds are the only fully endothermic or warm-blooded dinosaurs, this also began in, in their ancestors. So as you know, Madison, an animal's growth rate is generally a good indication of its metabolism in general. And yeah. the growth rates of vertebrates are recorded in their bones, quite distinctly. Now, the same analysis of dinosaur bones showed that they were mesothermic, or about halfway between the metabolism of birds and other modern reptiles like lizards. Okay, so like, sort of like your, do they have like a countercurrent heat exchange thing going on? Unclear? Maybe. That's a good question. Though. Right. We don't know about their veins. Okay. But okay. the earliest birds were also mesotherms. They didn't have the supercharged metabolism that modern birds have. Gotcha. Which means that, like, one of the only uniquely bird things that birds actually do have, one would be their metabolism, two would probably be that most birds only have one ovary, um, but that's, like, the only two things, basically. 
I was about to make another Gwyneth Paltrow joke, but I can't. <laughs> I can with the with the super fast metabolism, but I don't want to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow's ovaries. I think that's <laughs> she definitely has a fast metabolism, though. Might be a bird. Might be a bird. Might be a bird. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow's not real. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Okay. <laughs> So even the tendency of birds to be very devoted parents probably had its roots in other dinosaurs, if fossils of bird-like dinosaurs sitting on their eggs had been interpreted correctly. So, like, okay. it's, it's everything. Over a hundred million years of evolution laid the groundwork for a small, lightweight dinosaur with body parts that could be co-opted for the purpose of flight. And when natural selection saw her chance to make another vertebrate fly, because birds were not the first vertebrates to fly, um, she took it. All right. I like that we're personifying natural selection as a woman now. That's fun. It just makes more sense to me. I don't know. I like it. I like I It sounds like a great Halloween costume. Ah, <laughs> that could be fun. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder what that would look like. Anyway, thought for another day. Um, yeah. Because, Madison, we haven't quite finished our story yet. Nope. So now we're going to fast forward again to around 66 million years ago. Uh, we're going to reach the end of the Cretaceous period and probably the worst point in it to be alive because its ending was... In a word, cataclysmic. Um, was the end of the Cretaceous when we had the uh, the old meteor friend? Yes. Also, yeah. a couple other things, including the largest volcanic, second largest volcanic eruption in, in Earth's history, also happened around that time. So it was not a good time to be alive. It was, it was like 2020 for dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that does not bode well for us. Um, no. but <laughs> so yeah. Um, so. This is kind of interesting, because regardless of how much the science updates, it's becoming more and more implicated that the asteroid was really what did it. Like, yes, the volcanism, and yes, this rapid sea level change probably didn't make it any better, but the extinction after the asteroid was, geologically speaking, extremely rapid. Happened yeah. super fast. Um, and there... So, there's such a good book. Uh, Stephen Brzezat, one of the authors of this paper, wrote a really good book called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, and he goes into, he uses the math around what we thought the asteroid did to sort of describe what the Earth might have looked like as it was happening, and I'm not going to try to describe it right now, but, look, <laughs> hell on Earth. Um, because, around this time, an asteroid or comet, somewhere between 7 and 50 miles wide, slammed into what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. This triggered catastrophic short-term climate change, acid rain, earthquakes, yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mega tsunamis, mega earthquakes, forests just disappeared. They all caught fire across the globe. Um, in a geologic instant, all non-avian dinosaurs and many, many other groups all ceased to exist, disappearing from the fossil record from that point on. A common misconception around the Cretaceous mass extinction was that birds as a whole made it through unscathed, but that's not true at all. In fact, only a small handful made it through. Um, among others, the once dominant in antiornithines, those opposite birds, all wiped out. All of them. Bye, opposite birds. Indeed, bye, opposite truth birds. Yep. Mm -hmm. Indeed. You're a little too happy about that, but we'll just keep going. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's also some ongoing debate as to why the Anantiornithines never, any of them made, made it out. It might have had something to do with they were possibly all adapted to live forest life and forests were on fire. Um, so maybe that's why they all went extinct. Um, but, you know, only time will tell because birds yeah, do not leave good fossils. That could have done it. I mean, like, as you were describing, you know, the effects of that asteroid, I was thinking to myself, 
the only other thing that could have done that is human civilization <laughs> like because <laughs> we're sort of doing that now um yeah almost as rapidly i would one could say even more rapidly but yeah okay yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a few parallels between that that and this, besides the asteroid. But it really you know. is twenty twenty for dinosaurs, or we should say twenty twenty is like the asteroid for us. Uh, okay, continue. We're now. now <laughs> hopefully, we do not have an extraterrestrial ball live in our future, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So finally, we arrive at the modern era, and thanks to the very hard work of Dr. Jarvis and others. The most comprehensive analysis of bird DNA to date has very likely answered lots of questions um, that fossils have not yet been able to answer with certainty. So basically, all modern birds are all closely related. This is actually kind of interesting because it's in the same way that all modern amphibians came, came from from the same group. But, yeah. Yeah. So all birds descended from a common ancestor that lived sometime around 95 to 100 million years ago. And from that ancestor came two main groups. We have the paleonaths, which are the old mouths, or the ancient mouths, and we have the new mouths, which are the neonaths. Can I guess which is which? Yes. Are the old mouths, um, like the shoebill stork, like the terrifying Ooh, so close. Okay. Pelican? Uh, opposite direction. No, I'm lost. Remember who was on the lowest, uh, lowest innovative bill. scale? Bill! A bill. Like a duck? So... Yes, they were super old, but not in not in the neonat, not in the paleonats. They were some of the earliest neonats. Now I even forgot what I was guessing. <laughs> <laughs> the paleonats. You want to keep going? Um, no, you can tell me. So those are the ratites, or the modern day ratites, or the ostriches, emus, kiwis, tinamous, and the like. Oh, um, of course, the giant ground birds. Indeed. Now, and the, the and, <laughs> yeah, it, yes. Um. There, I just got a flash in my head of all the cute ones, and I'm having trouble regaining my thoughts. Um, Tinamus are super cute. You should look them up. Maybe you like birds. But the Tinamu group and the ostrich group, which contains all the others that isn't the Tinamu, um, those probably originated very soon afterwards, around 80 to 85 million years ago. And from the neonaths would come every other bird. Uh, first, the land and waterfowl, like we just talked about, around 90 million years ago. And then the ancestor to literally everything else around 70 million years ago. However, however, compared to other birds at the <laughs> compared to other birds at that time, modern birds were not nearly as diverse, probably because of competition from the enantiornithines and pterosaurs, the first flying vertebrates. Um, they probably had a hold on most ecological roles. But after the Cretaceous extinction, things would change in a very big way. So, like you were just talking about, when all the when all the non-avian dinosaurs were wiped out, um, mammals, which were almost entirely nocturnal at that point and living in burrows, they popped out of the ground. Um, and we see the same trend in birds, judging by their DNA. So, 15 million years later, <laughs> this is from 65 million years ago to 50 million years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Nearly every other kind of bird showed up in that point, only 15 million years after the Cretaceous extinction, which is, again, like, that's an evolutionary blip. We have flamingos, grebes, doves, cranes, plovers, penguins, herons, cranes, birds of prey, hornbills. Are you going to list all the birds right now? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was almost done with the list. Come on. Okay, fine. <laughs> Songbirds and more. <laughs> okay, See, I was almost done. They all had their ancestors traced back to those first 15 million years, which is just kind of crazy, right? 
That is really interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that's it. There you have it. The All most right. complete story of bird evolution so far. Brought to us by a wonderful and quite productive union of paleontology and genetics. Birds really by cool. indeed. Birds by no means evolved quickly. Rather than the many adaptations once considered unique to them were actually assembled piecemeal over hundreds of millions of years. And much like today's mammals, it wasn't until after the literally earth-shaking destruction of the End Cretaceous extinction that the birds we know of were really able to diversify in earnest. Their legacy lives on in the 10,000-plus species of bird which with we share our modern world. Very nice conclusion. That's awesome. This was such, what I can't such stop a good article. About, uh, after hearing that article is now, and it's something I, I my mind does does sit in a lot. Um, you know, if the equivalent, if if climate change, if we aren't able to take the actions that we know we need to take, um, which by the way, just I'm just gonna take an opportunity to say it again, um, we do know how to stop climate change from killing us. We do, we, sure we do. do know how to fix that problem. Um, scientists have figured it out. It's been laid out. We just need to enact it. Um, hashtag Green New Deal. Um, but if we don't do that, if, if you know, evil wins, then <laughs> I'm thinking about the, the void that's going to be left when humans disappear. Because that's another misconception about climate change is that it's going to, like, kill the planet. It's not. It's going to kill humans. Um, right. but that's We're the ones that are screwed. Yeah, we are the ones that are screwed. It's not that we are killing the planet; is that it's that we're making the planet uninhabitable for us specifically. Um, we're killing ourselves. But if that happens, I think it's something like it's definitely more than fifty percent of land space on Earth is human occupied and human altered. Um, it, I think it's like seventy percent. Um, we think the last number was sixty, but seventy sounds right. Yeah, I mean it's it's. More than 50. <laughs> we know that for sure. Um, that's a huge niche. 50% of all land. <laughs> that's <laughs> Seriously. That's like so the many. the equivalent of the earth opening back up. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, like, you know, if if this current age of extinction goes unchecked, who's going to be the new birds? You know? I don't know about the new birds, but there is a wacky documentary. I don't know if you saw it, uh, like 10 or 20 years ago called, I think it's called After Earth. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. So it focuses on this exact subject. And while I can't speak for who's going to become the new birds, apparently squids are going to evolve to be arboreal. Oh, sure. I mean, (laughs) squids squids are definitely doing very well climate change wise. Um, In general, squid populations are going up and up and up. um, Whereas many other populations of other types of animals are not trending that way. (laughs) Oh, squids. Share your your success. Um, short, live fast, die young. That's what squids do. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, squids are doing really well. Jellies are doing really well. Um, a lot of arthropods always doing well. A lot of fungi <laughs> are doing super well right now. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We could place bets on uh, who's going to be the next birds, but here's the fun thing. We won't be around to find out. So what's the point? Yeah. Our ancestors um, might, if we can correct all this stuff, but, uh, you know, let's do that. Yeah. Our ancestors, you mean our progeny. Did I say ancestors? You did. Our, oh, what's the new word? We we are the basil. No, no, we're the derived. No, well, the Wait. ones, oh. no, we're talking about the future, then we're the basil, and the new ones would be the derived. Right, yes, we're the basil. We're we the are basil. always, 
listen, every single one of you listening, you're someone's Basil and you're someone's derived. I hope that brings <laughs> you. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. <laughs> Well, that was a really cool article. Um, I know I put up a hard front with my with my bird, um, my anti bird policies, but that was that was super fascinating. Um, I did not hate it nearly as much as I thought I would. I actually quite liked it. I'm so glad. Very like actually. That's interesting. I, I always love to hear about you know how things came to be, evolution, origin stories, whether like mythological origin stories that are completely creative and invented or scientific ones like evolution i love i love hearing how things started so that's cool i like putting things into boxes it helps me make sense i hate boxes but you're great um (laughs) (laughs) well thank you yeah um speaking of we decided before we started recording today that we would add a new box to the end of the episodes um called the things that i learned this week box fun facts box it's time for that box (laughs) we'll get a sound effect to uh start to start this off in the future oh do the sound effect of someone like tearing open like a a package (laughs) how's that there it is all right what's in that box jared my notes i just ripped up um (laughs) no what's your fun fact oh um i had this earlier um Ooh, my fun fact is that a lot of people think that it's the water bear that is, like, the organism that's most able to, like, survive in space and colonize the space environment, but it's not actually one organism. It's a combination of organisms called a lichen. Lichen! Yes! So lichens are an unholy match... I'm not going to say unholy. It's a matrimony of a alga or a single-celled plant and a fungus. And what that allows them... Land coral. (laughs) Land coral. Oh, I like that. Um, basically, if you ever look on a rock and there's, it looks like a lot of little fraying stuff, that's a lichen, because lichens can eat rock. It's just, they're crazy. But they can also survive, I think it's like up to 1.5 times the radiation that that would kill a water bear. Lichens just survive unscathed. Um, there was, I think, no, that was, they didn't survive that. Either way, you can put lichens in space and they'll just kind of go into stasis and survive. You can completely dehydrate them, wake them up 10 years later, and they will revive. Lichens are insane. They are the thing that would colonize other planets if that actually happened. Incredible. I love it. Um, My fun fact is actually somewhat related because you said colonize other planets if that happened. Um, Yeah, I learned that one of Jupiter's moons um is covered completely in like a miles thick sheet of ice oh shit really but that we know because of geysers that explode into space that there is liquid water underneath that sheet of ice and what's more from the stuff that comes out of the geysers into space we know that there are hydrothermal vents what in that water Mm -hmm. in that water under that mile of ice on one of jupiter's moons I like that I was impressed about the ice and then you just kept going. Right? I was too. I was like, wow, that's a lot of ice. Cool, fun fact. And then, yeah. Isn't that, that amazing? Is, oh, that's so, so cool. Um, yeah. Maybe we can do a paper on the panspermia hypothesis at some point, because that's a really cool one to look into too. The panspermia hypothesis. Sounds panspermia. good. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically the idea that life may have been seeded here by somewhere else or vice versa. Oh, yes. Okay, cool. Pan, panspermia, sperm from everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not a fun thought to just, just like think about, but a cool cool scientific theory. Honestly, panspermia, panspermia, it's the same image. <laughs> <laughs> just 
just a lot of wiggling. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, awesome. All right. So I don't know yet what I'm going to be talking about next week, but uh, we'll all find out together. And the one thing I do know for <laughs> sure is it will be by a black scientist. Hashtag black AF in STEM. Love it. Alrighty. Love it. All right. I'll see you next week, Jared. Thank you. Alrighty. Oh, visitors. Visitors. Oh, yeah. You guys. Jesus Christ. Listeners. <laughs> um thank you so much for listening we love uh, you please, if you can um we love you uh send us a valentine in the form of rate reviewing or subscribing to this podcast um and also we asked for feedback last week but we did not provide any way for our uh listeners to actually give us feedback so i figured we should probably oh. email address what do you think jared yeah that would be a good idea <laughs> yeah so you can send requests or feedback or any I mean, be nice, please. But uh, constructive criticism is welcome. Um, yeah. To what's our email? I thought you knew it. I don't know it. Um, I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Give me like two seconds to look this. Up. All right. Oh God, we're professional. So we are at podcast at scienceandpictures dot com. All right, podcast p o d c a s t at symbol science in pictures.com talk to us um and if we remember our password to our email account we'll talk back <laughs> yeah man <laughs> Which... all right all right guys thank you for joining us and uh goodbye we'll see you next week goodbye. later